If I were to ask you what time it is right now, you would likely think about looking at your watch or at a clock or more likely at your phone. Well, I am asking you that. What time is it? But I do not mean what the clock says. The Greek word for that kind of time is usually the word chronos. That is clock time. You could even say it refers to sequential time. Mankind throughout history has sought to somehow quantify it, to somehow utilize it. We looked at shadows, you know, early on in human history to determine the time. That advanced all the way to the sundial. Now we have the most accurate clocks in the world to measure it. And we have calendars and we have apps to try to manage chronos somehow. I even have a clock that projects the time on the ceiling of my bedroom so that when I wake up during the middle of the night, I know exactly how much sleep I am not getting. <laughs> it's important to us, actually, this thing called chronos. I needed to know what time to arrive here this morning for prayer with the elders. Last night, I texted someone to find out what time I need to end my sermon. Even while I preach, I have a, a clock face here on my phone, which is sitting here on the pulpit, so I can end at the proper time. I mentioned that just to give you hope here this morning. <laughs> but for this sermon, I am thinking of another Greek term, not chronos. It's kairos. This term kairos is used to describe time, but something that's different than clock time. It's more the idea of a definite period of time or a, a fixed span of time, even epics of history on the timeline and, and the significance of those epics. Kairos includes the idea of time being an opportune moment for us for some reason, or a, a decisive moment for us. So you can see the difference. Chronos is more of a measurement. Kairos is more of a perception, an understanding, an evaluation. So when I ask you what time it is this morning, I, I don't want you to look at your watch or your phone. I'm asking you to set Kronos aside for a moment. Get off the treadmill of, of Kronos and instead seek to understand, to evaluate, to discern the Kairos of your lives, which means ultimately I'm asking each of us to look at our hearts. Now we find this term Kairos in our passage for this morning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I invite you to that familiar chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 to 31. Now, chapter 7 
of 1 Corinthians is where we frequently go in ministry to answer important questions about marriage, about physical intimacy in marriage, about celibacy, about singleness, about divorce, about remarriage. It's a full chapter. But in the middle, more or less, of this chapter, the Apostle Paul, the author, suddenly makes some very unusual statements. And I confess to you, when I first read these statements myself a few years back, studying 1 Corinthians, I, I found what he says here to be quite startling, even perplexing, to be honest with you. But once I studied the assertions that Paul makes here, I found these verses to be some of the most profound in this letter. I'll read them for you, 1 Corinthians 7 Verses 29 to 31. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now that gets your attention. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now, right before this section, verses 25 to 28, Paul has discussed with his readers, his original audience, whether or not to get married. And that was due to the challenging nature of the circumstances of his day, what was going on. So in one sense, these verses I just read inject a, another factor into that discussion. And yet it's also true that the beginning of verse 29, those words, but this I say, that marks a transition to a new point. And so the pronoun this, but this I say, it's actually pointing forward now to what follows and what I read. Also, notice that term brethren in verse 29. That signals something for us. That's Paul's way of broadening uh, his perspective so that he's addressing anyone and everyone. In other words, what he's saying now is beyond the topic of, of marriage. It's beyond the concern about singleness. The apostle is bringing all of us to consider what I think is one of the most important truths in Scripture. And here it is, that someday everything we know about our world, everything we know about our lives, our culture, our day-to-day -day experiences, all forms of society, it doesn't matter, everything we know about our present life is going to change forever. And therefore... We should rethink our present existence, rethink our lives now in light of the truth about the time in which we live. And we find the truth about the time in which we live in that very dramatic statement in verse 29. The time, it's kairos, the time has been shortened. Now, we actually do need to combine that thought with what's found at the end of the section that I read. So jump down to verse 31 for a moment. It ends by saying this, 
the form of this world is passing away. It, let's, let's keep those two thoughts together, the bookend thoughts here. These two statements together give us the basis for the appeal that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is making in this passage. But don't read those superficially. Don't misinterpret those two bookend statements. Someone might read those and think, well, yeah, I, okay, I get what he's saying. He's just making the point that our lives are short. Of course, that our lives are short. He's saying that everybody's going to die at some point, right? Well, that's all true. <laughs> that's definitely reality. But that's not the meaning here. Let's look at that first statement for a moment. The time is shortened. As I've already noted, kairos in our passage is designating a particular span of time, a period of time, a season in God's plans. More specifically, Paul uses the term here to refer to the span, the period of time that started with Christ coming into the world and including his life and death and resurrection, the ascension back to heaven. And then this period of time that ends with his coming again at the end of the age, which of course is still future. So just like the original readers, we too today are living in that period or span of time in God's economy. And that means there's a portion of this period, this kairos, that remains for each of us. From the time, we could just say it this way, from the time that we're studying this verse this morning until the Lord returns. There's some kairos that remains. But regardless of when we live in this kairos, this span of time, this verse says it's been shortened. And it helps to know that literally that term carries the idea of being compressed. The time has been compressed. The future, for God's people at least, has been compressed. It's brought forward in such a way that we see it clearly. It's clearly visible to us. Now, perhaps a reasonable illustration. I read this somewhere. I thought it was appropriate. A reasonable illustration would be a telephoto lens on a camera. Let me explain what a camera is. Some of you have never seen one. <laughs> there used to be this thing that we wore on a strap around our necks or something like that. It's called a camera. And you could attach other lenses to it, a really long one called a telephoto lens. And when you look at something, when you turn that telephoto lens, the distance to the object that you're viewing, the actual distance doesn't change. Only your ability to see that object more clearly. So it's a good illustration. In a similar way, we have a telephoto lens. And I'll tell you what it is. It's scripture. Scripture serves as that lens and it brings the future forward. It compresses time, so to speak, so that in Scripture we can find the truth about the present culture in which we live. We find the truth about the kairos in which we live. And as well, we can see what the future holds. 
It's compressed for us. And since it is compressed in that sense, we can start to understand some things differently and we can see events. And since it's compressed in Scripture, we can see events changing rapidly, quickly, toward the end. But the point is still not so much that the end is imminent, though it's always true that for God's people, we should live with that perspective. No, here it's rather that this kairos, this period of time set in motion by Christ's first coming, the whole kairos is in plain view so that we can understand what's happening presently and in the future God's people can understand it. The lost world can't understand this kairos correctly, but we do. So the one overall point of the passage of the sermon is that this reality, what I'm explaining, ought to make a difference in how we do live now. The concern then is not with how much time we actually have left, how much chronos each of us have left. That's not the concern. The concern is the radical new perspective we should have in this compressed time while we do live. We should live with radically altered views, radically altered values as to what counts and to what, as to what doesn't count. And so this message is applicable and true whether you lived in A.D. 50 or A.D. 2023. I like how Gordon Fee illustrates this. He says there, there's an analogy with someone who has been diagnosed with terminal illness, a terminal disease. For that person... The amount of time left becomes less important than the change in perspective that occurs in that person. They see things differently now. Hear things differently. They value things differently in a new way. Don't we say that sometimes? We say, boy, this puts it all into perspective, doesn't it? Now, the statement found at the end just adds to the thought, so I need to address it quickly. The form of this world is passing away. That term passing away is found only here in Paul's writings. It is found in John's writing in 1 John chapter 2. You know those verses that say the, the world is passing away? It, it, it comes, this term comes from the world of theater. The world of theater was very important to them and, and their day. And so there would be scenes of a play and the scenes would, would change in the, in the play. There's actors on a stage, but the play progresses and the scene changes. And so in a sense, this word now in our passage is presenting us as if we are actors in a play called life, but the scenes, the scene is going to change. And the term for form there in that verse is schema. It means the total scheme the total scheme of things as they currently exist is on its way out. So now back to verse 29. Notice that little phrase, so that. That confirms why Paul is telling us all this about the kairos. 
so that. God has a purpose for us this morning as we study this. God's purpose for his people in compressing the time and in causing the form to pass away is so that from now on, he says, meaning until the end of the church age in which we live, believers might clearly see what's going on around them and have this totally new perspective as to their relationship to the world. We're not told in this passage to leave the world. We're not told in this passage to stop interacting with it. But we are to keep a very loose hold on everything that's earthly and live free from the world's control. So this is what we're doing this morning. We're stopping the chronos for a moment. We're pushing the pause button on our lives, as it were, so that we can look at what the radical perspectives are that we should have before this scene changes for good, lest the rethink our present existence here by looking together at these radical perspectives, and there are five of them for us this morning. Five radical perspectives that God expects us to have while we live in this compressed time. Why? So that our lives will be pleasing to him. Now, one caution as we look at these five perspectives. Let's keep something in mind. Don't take the words themselves too literally, or otherwise these five perspectives become irrational, and they'll, they'll contradict something else in Scripture. So let's make sure we get the intent of what Paul says. But here's number one, radical perspective number one, God expects, number one, a radical view of relationships. A radical view of relationships. Verse 29. Those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, again, this is not contradicting what Scripture says are the roles in marriage for husbands and wives that we are to fulfill. Paul's certainly not saying in this chapter, chapter 7, he's not saying that married couples should be celibate. That would contradict verses 1 to 7. Physical intimacy is presented as a normal and part of marriage and a blessing from God. But individuals who are married are to remember that as wonderful as marriage is, it is not the most important relationship. Our relationship with Christ is more important. Pleasing Christ is more important than pleasing our spouse. Just remember something about marriage. It is temporary. It's only something related to this kairos, this compressed age. It makes me think of Mark chapter 12, verse 25. It says, for when they, they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, in the resurrection state, there will be no marital relationships, at least not as we know them now. But we can broaden the idea here. All relationships are going to change. Yes, in heaven we're going to know one another, but we're going to be experiencing each other in an entirely new way. Praise the Lord. Living in a new existence. So Paul's point is that we should be preparing for that eternal change in relationships now. Marriage cannot be an idol. Our spouse is not to be an idol Children are not to be an idol in our hearts. 
God alone is to be the object of our love, supreme love, our supreme delight, our supreme worship and adoration, nothing else, no one else. I love a, a poem I read many, many years ago. John Piper wrote it for his son's wedding. And so this was a long time ago. I don't even remember where I found it. But the title of the poem he wrote for his son as he was getting married was called this, Love Her More and Love Her Less. And each stanza of the poem tells the son to love his wife, his new wife, more than something. Love her more than wealth. Love her more than friends. Love her more than ease. Love her more than fame. Love her more than breath itself. But be sure to always love her less than God. And the last stanza reads this. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus, I bid you now to bless. Go love her more by loving her less. Profound. Of course, at my age, 103, <laughs> I remember, still appreciate to this day, a Christian singer named Keith Green. He had a little-known song called I pledge my head to heaven was the name of it. It means I pledge myself to heaven, the head representing everything about you. But the verse said, you know, I pledge my, myself to heaven. I pledge my child to heaven. But he had one about his wife. And here's what it says. I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. I told her when we wed that I'd rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. That's the perspective God expects. Of course we're to love our spouses, we're to love our children, we're to love our friends, we're to be grateful for them, we're to develop and mature those relationships. We are to fulfill all the responsibilities that God gives us in those relationships, but we're not to hold too tightly to them, not to hold too tightly to anything of this compressed existence. God expects a radical view of relationships. Number two, a radical view of trials. A radical view of trials. Now, this one's the really hardest one for people to accept sometimes. Verse 30, and those who weep live, in other words, as though they did not weep. Now, it's not that we're expected to have no emotions. God gives us emotions. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans 12, you know, that we're to weep with those who weep. And it, it is the same word that he uses here. He himself describes some of the intense struggles that he, he went through in ministry and life. We grieve. We are to grieve. We're to lament the sorrowful times that go along with living in this world. But those who grieve if they're not careful, if they're not thinking rightly, tend, can tend to be completely focused on their trial and engrossed in their mourning. They start to interpret everything through the grid of their difficult experience. And if not careful, they can even become self-focused 
thinking that the whole world revolves around their pain and their troubles and their difficulties, their tragic experience. And it ends up being then that in their minds, that's what defines them. But the reality is that trials and sorrowful situations, they're just a normal part of this compressed kairos. You've heard it before. It's the Christian life. We've either just come through a trial or we're in a trial or we're about to be in a trial. But we're not to let our sorrows even get the best of us. We're not to let our trials and challenges incapacitate us. And if you think about it, frankly, the crucial issue is not even that people suffer in this fallen world. That is the universal experience of mankind in a fallen world. So with each trial, doesn't matter whether it's small or great, we are to always be working on and practicing trusting the Lord in that situation. We're to put into practice the realization that our suffering, our disappointment, our pain is not even the greater issue of this compressed time. Those are times that God in his sovereignty have given to us as opportunities to glorify him. But we're weak. We easily become almost devastated by things that happen. We, we can be so upset. We can be so extremely troubled. We can be so extremely discouraged and depressed. But we, we must choose not to be too upset about anything. So yes, we grieve, and we should. We lament sorrow. We should. Otherwise, we trivialize suffering and sorrow. We don't want to do that. But still, we're not to let sadness or even failure in our lives consume us. We're to live with a radical view of trials. Number three. A radical view of blessings is the other end of the spectrum, right? A radical view of blessings, verse 30. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Now, this is also a part of our earthly experience here. Joy. Times when we're on top of the world. In fact, don't we have that command from the same author in Philippians 4, 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Of course we do. But... There's a but on each one of those here. Nevertheless, just like our tears, there's some sense here in which our joy, our laughter, still is not what totally defines who we are. We have to remember something about the good times. That even the good times that happen to us in this present existence are temporary. So in those good times, we are to be thankful and joyful. But we're not to let our happiness associated with the circumstances and experience of this world be overall what controls us. Praise God for successes. Praise God for the blessings. But once again, hold on to them loosely. What a perspective here. We're not to be too upset about anything, and we're not even to be too elated about anything. Every emotion 
has to be kept under control and not become excessive. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 puts it this way, keep sober in spirit. A radical view of blessings. Number four, God expects this, a radical view of possessions. A radical view of possessions. Verse 30 goes on, and those who buy as though they did not possess. Now, does Scripture discourage us from buying things and owning things? No, it does not. It does not discourage doing business. It does not discourage carrying on business operations. That's a normal part of this kairos, the experience of this world. We do have to purchase things. I mean, we've been here several days here this week. Couldn't go that long without going to Walmart at least once. It's part of life. Even if we don't need something, it's just part of life. You need to go. We purchase things. Sometimes it's necessities, sometimes luxuries. All of it's fine. And we should be grateful for those things. Do you know Christ himself used the concept of making a purchase in one of his parables, so there's nothing wrong with making purchases. But such activities are not to divert God's people, a follower of Christ, from the real business of life. And that's loving Christ, serving Christ. Can diversions like that happen? Oh, yes, they can. Especially when it comes to possessions. We so easily focus on them. We so easily concentrate on our new possessions. They can become consuming. So the perspective we're developing in this is nothing we purchase, doesn't matter what the cost is, the principle is the same, nothing we purchase must be of such importance to us that they become a complete preoccupation in our hearts. We're to buy, but look what it says, as if not. Buy things as if not in terms of possessing anything. A.W. Tozer has a chapter in his book, The Pursuit of God, has a, a chapter there called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. Worth a read. So just remember this. Everything we have, all of our possessions, including our money, money would fit here in this category, a radical view of money, you see, all of it is on loan from God. We're stewards of everything. And we're to enjoy it all for sure. We're to be grateful for things, but we're not to allow our stuff. We're not to allow our possessions to own us. And we're to always be conscious of something in this compressed age, this kairos, our money, our possessions. We're to be thinking, how can we use our stuff for him to invest in the kingdom? So God expects a radical view of relationships, a radical view of trials, a radical view of blessings, a radical view of possessions. Here's the last one. Number five. A radical view of opportunities. 
a radical view of opportunities. This fifth exhortation is the most general, and, and so therefore it really is an, an appropriate sort of climax to the whole set here. It's verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. What fits here? Well, a lot of things. A lot of our earthly activities fit here. All the things that we can devote our, our time to, the, the many pursuits and endeavors of, of life in this world. And unless the Bible specifically prohibits something, it's fine to take advantage of, of the various opportunities that come our way. It's fine to get involved in, in earthly endeavors and, and pursuits. It's fine to make goals. It's fine to pursue our goals. I mean, there's just so much to experience in our earthly existence. There's so much in this life that we can benefit from. So in no way is Paul advocating some sort of, of separatism. But Christians, it says, are not to make full use of it. Now he says we use it, but not make full use. The verb here is the same as that first one, but it has this intensive prefix on it. And it only occurs twice in the New Testament here, but also in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, later on, Paul uses this term to talk about even though he had the rights of, a, of an apostle, he did not take full advantage of his rights to receive financial support. In particular, I think it's chapter 9, verse 18, where he says, I gave the gospel without charge. You know, I, I did not make full use of my rights. So the term is something behind, but beyond just using. It's a term that means to be engrossed in something, to be absorbed in something. Christians are not to be preoccupied with any of our earthly opportunities and our resources and our circumstances to the point that we're absorbed. Instead, we pursue those things, we take advantage of those things, but we do it in such a way that we are detached from them, even as we pursue them. Again, so many things fit in this category, so many goals, so many dreams we can pursue. My wife's had to endure that for 46 plus years. We married when we were seven. <laughs> I'm constantly coming in with grandiose ideas. Hey, let's sell everything we have. Let's buy a sailboat and live on that and just sail around. She had to learn early on not to react to those things, <laughs> but to say something positive. Oh, interesting. <laughs> what kind of sailboat? <laughs> and then let me work through it until I come to the point of saying, nah, it's a stupid idea. We're not going to do that. <laughs> Ladies, word of advice there on all that. Lots of dreams. So many activities to get involved in. So many careers a person could possibly delve into. Some of you have had more than one career change. It's great. So many hobbies. Good causes you can devote yourself to. So many things we can learn. Books to read. 
places to visit and see, so many foods to enjoy. Pam and I were just in Italy a couple weeks ago. So many flavors of gelato that <laughs> it's hard to choose. It's mind-blowing. Each of these are things that are done and enjoyed, think about it, by Christians as well as non-Christians. And they're all fine, but ultimately, none of it matters. Why? Because of the reality concerning the world. We noted it, verse 31, it goes on to say, the form of this world is passing away. Everything's just part of this passing away existence. Marriage is a part of the present scheme of things that's on its way out. Trials and blessings are part of what is passing away. The ability to buy and sell things is passing away. All the resources, all the opportunities, all the endeavors of this world that make our lives so full and enjoyable are passing away. Many things can be done or not done. Doesn't matter in one sense. What matters is chapter 10, verse 31, and whatever we do, eat or drink, Bring glory to Him. That matters. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 matters. Where Paul says, I have as my driving ambition. This is what propels me. This is what consumes me. Whether dead or alive. To be pleasing to Him. So even while we're using the world, we're not to make full use of it. We're not to be absorbed. Again, another illustration that I've read was the proverbial child in his lack of wisdom, you know, who puts his hand in the jar of candy to grab as much as he can, and then he can't get his hand out because he's got too much. He's got to let go of some things. He's too greedy. It's not just children who can do that, you see. So use the world. You can, you must. Now, some things are clearly out of the question. Okay, we're not talking about those. If the Bible forbids something. But the rest, enjoy. Just be careful. Don't fill your hand too full. Otherwise, what you're gripping tends to get a grip on you. So some other passages come to mind that are parallel thoughts here. Words that apply then regardless of what circumstance we are in, like Colossians 3 verse 2. I mean, that's a, that's a companion thought, right? Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Obviously, it doesn't mean that we don't take care of earthly responsibilities, but there's something grander, grander, something greater. We set our affections, our minds on things above. We live our lives heavenly-minded. But we forget that sometimes. We get used to things, you know, when we're around them a lot. I have a clock like that in my office. When new people come in and sit down, it's like, how do you stand the ticking of that clock all the time? I go, what? And I focus on it, and I go, oh, yeah. I don't hear it anymore. I'm used to it. I've gotten accustomed to it. I just don't think about it. We're like that about heaven and about eternity. We, we, we lose those thoughts the sound of eternity, we lose it from our ears, the reality of the coming of the Lord. But, but this reminds us again that 
Nothing must cause that to happen. We, we can't let anything to hinder our obedience to what God has called us to be and to do. So you make it personal this morning. You ask yourself, are your relationships, are your possessions, are your trials, your work, your hobbies, your goals, your dreams, your pursuits, is anything getting in the way of your relationship with Christ? Then the solution is clear. Loosen your grip. Stop trying to make full use of the experience of this world. Just a couple of summary conclusions this morning about all this. Here's one. And you've already arrived at this point, so I'm just verbalizing it for all of us here this morning. One summary conclusion, number one. Your circumstances are never the most important issue. They never are. They're real, just not the most important thing. What's more important? I've already said it. Who Christ is and being obedient to him and pleasing him, that's always more important. And so this is in the context of 1 Corinthians 7, you know, all those other topics. So really, while we're talking about here, this is true. This is important whether you're young or you're older. It's important whether you're married or you're single. This is shocking. Being single or married is not the crucial question. Either one's okay. What we experience, trials or blessings, not ultimately what's important. Whether we own a little or own a lot, whether we've been successful in reaching all of our dreams and goals in this life, just not the main thing. Whatever our situation is, what's important is that you, in that circumstance, are marked by eternity. You know what that does? That takes the edge off the troubles of this world. We'll talk more about that tonight. You see, being heavenly minded enables us to endure all kinds of challenging situations. If you're heavenly minded, you find more of the strength to endure a, a difficult marital situation or, or some other trial or, or, or some experience that's undesirable and unsatisfying because you start being consumed with how can I glorify God in this some way? So your identity does not have to be determined by what's happened to you in your past. It doesn't have to determine you now in the present or even what happens in the future does not have to determine your identity. Our identity is being in Christ and living for him in every situation, every moment of chronos in this kairos. Second summary conclusion here. I think it's valid from this passage. Don't seek escape from the world. I mean, we're not supposed to live with a hedonistic attitude in this world, you know, living by the motto, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But it's also true that nothing here is advocating passivity in this world or aloofness. No, I, I think it's understood here. It's understood that his perspective and the Bible's perspective would be get in it. Get in it and live. 
Just don't forget these radical perspectives. So make plans, make goals, take steps to reach those goals. I think Paul's a good example of that. You can look at his ministry in life in the New Testament and, and, and understand that he, he knew how to live in this compressed age. And yet, though he had these radical perspectives, he continued to talk even to the Corinthians. Later in chapter 16, verse 5, he mentions to the Corinthians his future plans. He was going to come visit them. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5, I'm going to come to you after I go through Macedonia, and then I, I am going through Macedonia, verse 7, hope to remain with you for some time. Part of my plans here, I'll remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. He did throw in this little phrase, very important, if the Lord permits all this. So he made plans. He talked to the Corinthians about their future donation to aid the the relief work for those churches in Judea that were suffering. So nothing about these perspectives are meant to make us lazy, uncaring about the things of the world. It's not meant to make us indifferent. But these perspectives do help us make our goals and then take the action step to reach those goals with the right thinking in place. Without violating in a word, what is all this about? Priorities. Priorities. Make your plans and your dreams, but remember the main thing. I think Joshua, many centuries before this, verbalized the main thing. As for me and my house, what? We'll serve the Lord. And you can have the confidence and assurance and the joy of knowing that all your serving of the Lord and efforts to please Him are worth it and they're not in vain. You know why I know that? Because Paul tells us that later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The toil about glorifying Him and pleasing Him. Not in vain. So I don't know how you answered those questions. It could be time for you this morning. It's a, it's a moment of kairos the Lord has, has given you. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, that maybe the Lord has you here for a reset. We do that sometimes. Reset. Do some inventory. Take a look at your life. Perhaps you need a, a reorientation of your values and your goals and your priorities. It's a good moment for a reset this morning. Or perhaps this morning you need to admit humbly that you don't know Christ at all. You're really not a follower of Christ. And if so, none of this really applies to you yet. If he hasn't forgiven you of your sin, then life in this kairos, life in this compressed time, that's a, a very fearful way to live. Come humbly to Christ, admitting your own sin. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, I need to be forgiven of my sin. I trust you, not myself anymore. I follow you, first of all. Maybe that's what the Lord has you here for today. Let's pray together.
Uh, Father, we are so grateful for the reminder of the character of this kairos and the reality concerning it and what you expect from us, your people, that this is, this is biblical living in summary, biblical living 101. Lord, how we need those resets. We get so caught up with the things of the world, good and bad. So focused on the wrong things, we forget the main thing. Constantly in need of a reset. So thank you for that opportunity this morning. Thank you for the chronos that you do give us. You, in your providence, you've designed what the minutes and hours and days and years are for our lives. So we trust you for all that. But Lord, give us this ability to stop this love affair we have with this world at times. Help us to remember that we're to seek your kingdom first of all and let all the other things come according to your will. We're so grateful for what Christ accomplished on the cross that all of our past and present and future failures and moments of worldly thinking, all of it covered by Christ so that we can be free to serve you with joy. Thank you for that, for Christ, who is our identity. In his name we pray, amen.